All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So begins Leo Tolstoy's famous novel, Anna Karenina. This line has been quoted in many different contexts, and it rings true to many people. Families that are happy share a common set of attributes that tend to lead to happiness. But many, many different things can cause a family to be unhappy. Family is a concept we think we all understand, and yet it's surprisingly hard to define. Is family defined by feelings of love for each other? If so, are you still a family if that love is strained or even absent? Is family a group of people who are related and live together? If so, will my nephew Jeb still be a part of his family when he moves from Chattanooga to Maine for college in a couple of weeks? Families can be complex, messy, and hard to understand, especially for those outside the family itself. Our scripture this morning is the first part of a long, complex story of one of the best-known families in the Old Testament. Jacob, his wives, and his 12 sons, and one daughter. The story in Genesis 37 begins when, Je when jo Jacob's so second youngest son, Joseph, was 17 years old. As we heard, Joseph, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. Joseph was the child of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, the one he fell in love with when he first met her, the one he worked for 14 years to gain the right to marry, after being tricked into marrying her older sister, Leah, first, but that's a story for another day. Joseph was Rachel's first child, the son of Jacob's old age, and from the start, Jacob showed him preference. When Joseph was a teenager, his father singled him out by giving him a special robe to wear. You probably learned in Sunday school that this was a coat of many colors, an idea reinforced in the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It turns out that the scripture translated from Hebrew doesn't say anything about colors. That was an idea that came from a later Greek translation of the Hebrew. Instead, the Hebrew scripture says that Joseph received an ornate robe, a robe with long sleeves, the idea being this was the kind of robe that royalty would wear. Clearly, Jacob wanted everyone to know that Joseph was special. So how do you think a 17-year-old boy might react to such special treatment from his father? The Bible doesn't tell us much. But it's kind of easy to guess that Joseph might have been, let's say, a bit impressed with himself. We know he wore the special robe a lot because he was wearing it when he went out to help his brothers tend sheep in Shechem. We also know that in the opening verses of this scripture passage, Joseph got four of his brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, if you're keeping track, in trouble by tattling to their father about their behavior. And in verses 7 through 11 of this passage, the ones we didn't read today, Joseph described two dreams he had, both of which elevated him as leader and described his whole family bowing down to him. It's not terribly surprising that his brothers weren't too fond of Joseph. 
In fact, they hated him because he was a tattletale, because they could see that their father loved him best. A line that from, from the song that Kim just sang says it well. Being told we're also Rands does not make us Joseph fans. They were so angry at Joseph that they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. It's tempting to blame Joseph for everything that went wrong in the family, but there was actually plenty of blame to go around. Jacob showed preferential treatment to one of his children and made it clear that he loved his other children less. Joseph brought negative reports about his brothers, and the brothers nurtured a hatred of jo Joseph that eventually boiled over. So it was against this backdrop of family conflict, a spoiled younger child, doted on by his dad and hated by his brothers, that Joseph went out to check on his brothers as they were pasturing a flock of sheep in Shechem, with the instruction to bring back a report to Joseph about them. When Joseph arrived in Shechem, the brothers weren't there. He wandered around a little bit, confused, until a neighbor found him wandering and told him that the brothers had moved the flock to Dothan, about 15 miles away. So Joseph trudged off to Dothan to find his brothers. If we were Joseph at this point, we might have been mumbling some choice words about having to hike all over creation just to find our, find our brothers. As Joseph approached Dothan, the brothers were less than overjoyed to see him. So much so, in fact, that they plotted to kill him, soak his hated robe in blood, and tell Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. But in the midst of this terrible plot, two brothers spoke up as voices of reason. The first was Reuben, the oldest brother. Reuben suggested that they not kill him, but throw him into a pit. Reuben secretly planned to come back and rescue Joseph later. Being thrown into a pit or a cistern was a common punishment in Joseph's time. The brothers agreed, stripped off Joseph's robe, and threw him in the pit. Then, in the middle of this family drama, they calmly sat, sat down to eat. While they were eating, they saw some Ishmaelite traders, and brother Judah suggested that they make some money by selling Joseph to the traders at, who would take him to Egypt. The brothers agreed, and Joseph was car carried off to Egypt as a slave. That's a lot of family drama in a fairly short period of time. So why this story at this place in Genesis? The story of Joseph takes up four, a total of 14 chapters at the end of the book of Genesis. It's a story of family, of brokenness, of reconciliation, but it's also an important story for our common understanding of our faith because it's a story of the emergence of Jacob's family as Israel, God's chosen people. Jacob, who also used the name Israel, was the father of the people of Israel, and his sons became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was descended from the tribe of Levi on her mother's side and from the tribe of Judah, the brother who argued to spare Joseph's life by selling him on her father's side. So this story illustrates the movement of Jacob and his sons from an individual family to the family of God. 
The story of Jacob's sons is also a bridge between the books of Genesis and Exodus. Until jo Joseph was sold into slavery, Jacob and his family lived in Canaan. Over the next 20 years, Joseph went through numerous difficulties in Egypt, being sold to Potiphar, refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife, being accused of attacking her, being thrown into prison. But Joseph eventually became recognized for his ability to interpret dreams. He helped Pharaoh understand that Pharaoh's dream about cows and wheat were actually predictions that Egypt would, would were actually predictions that Egypt would experience seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh made Joseph his second in command and Joseph saved Egypt from the famine by storing surplus grain during the prosperous years. When famine hit, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to try to buy some grain. After several twists and turns, Joseph and his brothers were eventually reunited and reconciled. Jacob and the rest of the family came to Egypt and settled there. So the story of Joseph and his brothers explains how the people of Israel came to be living in Egypt many years later when Moses was born. So it's a bridge between the two books. So how does this story of Jacob, Joseph, and the brothers relate to our lives today? It might be tempting to oversimplify the story. Showing off and tattling on your brothers is bad. Joseph got what was coming to him. Or Jacob was the first one to recognize that Joseph was exceptional and eventually the rest of the world recognized it too. But neither of these explanations really tells the whole story because this is not just a compelling story about a family and the conflicts that tore them apart. It's also a story of, about how God works in people's lives. This story is different from earlier stories in Genesis because the people in this story did not speak with or hear from God directly the way Adam and Eve and Abraham and so many others did. God was still present with Joseph through his many challenges, but unobtrusively behind the scenes. The people of Israel became the ones responsible for sharing the word of God with each other. And God did not actually speak directly to God's people again until Moses heard God speaking from the burning bush. And yet, even though God didn't speak directly to Joseph or anyone else in the family, God used this messy, imperfect family for good. Out of the brother's evil decision to sell Joseph as a slave, emerged the way to save the people of, Israel, of Egypt and surrounding countries from starvation. And from Joseph's whole experience came his maturity and love that led him to forgive his brothers and reconcile with his family. Instead of punishing them, he showed them love. Nobody was excluded in the end. God worked for good and God used Joseph and his family for good even with all of their flaws. And that's perhaps the most important message for each of us today. God works for good and uses us for good even when we don't feel like we're good enough. Maybe you have an image of, the perfect, of what the perfect Christian is like. Never misses worship, 
volunteers for everything, reads the Bible every day, prays without ceasing, always kind to everyone, free of sin. Unfortunately, the perfect Christian does not exist. All of us have flaws, weaknesses, challenges, and days or weeks or months when we're exhausted or stressed or depressed or angry and don't treat others well. And I need to tell you a secret that's probably not much of a secret. Ministers aren't perfect either, or at least I'm not. I haven't worked with Teresa long enough to know yet if she's perfect. I'll have to ask her family. I was surprised to find out that some people expect ministers to be perfect. I've had good friends who treated me as a normal person before I went into ministry say to me after my ordination, well, I better not swear or drink or smoke around you because you're a minister. But ministers aren't perfect. Like everybody else, we can be messy and impatient and tired and lonely and so many other things. The good news is God doesn't expect or need perfect people. God can and will take us and use us just as we are today. Sometimes we don't expect the things God calls us to do. A little over four years ago, I told the Georgia Commission on Ministry that I didn't see a time when I'd be pastoring a church. And yet here we are today. And God is also guiding each of you and us as a community of faith to bring about good in our world. The other important lesson from the story of Joseph and his brothers is about extending grace. God extended grace to Joseph, even though he may have acted like a spoiled brat to his brothers. God extended grace to Jacob, even though he showed preference for one son over others, and to the brothers who considered mur mur murdering Joseph and eventually sold him into slavery. And God extends each one of us the same kind of grace that he gave to this messy, imperfect family. God's grace may be hard to see or hear, especially when life is difficult, but it's there. In one of my most difficult moments recently, traveling for the funeral of one of my best friends, I saw three moments of grace that helped me recognize God in a difficult situation. A kind woman I didn't know who drove home to get me some ibuprofen for my aching knees, my friend's sister-in-law who squeezed my hand and said, I know this is hard for you too. And a kind man driving a cart in the airport who saw me limping toward my gate to catch my plane home and drove me where I was going. These little things showed me powerfully that God was there in that hard situation extending grace to me. I'm wondering when and where you've noticed grace in your life because I promise you that you can see small glimpses of it if you look carefully. A child drawing you a picture. Someone from church baking something for you. A text or phone call from a faraway friend saying they're thinking of you. That car that pauses for a second to let you into traffic. The person who stops to help you pick up the papers that you dropped. These seemingly insignificant moments can be powerful reminders that God is with us all. And we can all help build a world where God's grace is evident simply by extending to ourselves and to others around us the same grace that God extends to everyone.
take time to notice and acknowledge the good things being done around you. Thank the person who helps you. Smile at a stranger as you pass. Notice a flower growing or birds singing. And find small ways every day to extend that grace to others. Because God works for good in God's messy world, and God needs us, no matter how imperfect we are, to be instruments of God's grace in that world. Amen.